This episode of the Amy Podcast is brought to you by Healthmark. Go to healthmarkgi.com to find solutions that help endoscopy clinics manage the proper reprocessing of scopes. This includes products for cleaning verification, tools for cleaning, labeling, time indicators, tip protectors, PPE, and other useful solutions. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Amy Podcast. I'm Terry Baker. Our guests today are Marianne Drosnock and Damian Berg, who will be talking about the importance of drying flexible endoscopes, as well as other sterile processing topics. Marianne is Director of Clinical Education at Healthmark Industries in Fraser, Minnesota, as well as co-chair for the Amy WG84, the work group responsible for ANSI Amy ST91. Damien is Regional Manager for UC Health and Direct Manager for the Medical Center of the Rockies and Poudre Valley Hospitals in Northern Colorado. He is an international speaker and has written several articles on sterile processing leadership. Berg is the 2018-2019 President of the International Association of Healthcare Central Service Material Management, or ISHM, and an active participant in several AMI Sterilization Standards Committees. Both Marianne and Damien are members of the BINT editorial board. Welcome to the show, Marianne and Damien. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I appreciate being on this uh, podcast with Marianne as well. So thank you, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's start off by discussing the drying of flexible endoscopes. Why is this so crucial? Marianne, let's start with you. Great. Thanks, Terry. Drying is such a crucial step in the process of um, making sure that these scopes are adequately cleaned and disinfected between uses. Historically, drying wasn't something that was widely focused on or even studied. It was just assumed or thought that the scope went through its automated cycle in an endoscope processor. Um, We call that an AER which has an air purge cycle. And we assumed then, since it had that air purge cycle, that the scope was dry. What we now know through various studies and implementation of internal inspection with boroscopes, that that's not the case, that these scopes are not getting dry by the air purge cycle in the AER. So the national standard ST91 from Amy, which we'll talk about hopefully in more detail, uh, recommends further drying with a flush of compressed air prior to storage. Uh, Actually, all of the standards and guidelines now state that the scope must be completely dry prior to going into the storage cabinet or it has to be placed into an active drying uh, cabinet is a recommendation. And how we get scopes completely dry is by doing this uh, incremental step of flushing with compressed air to make sure that the internal channels are dry and then also wiping outside of the endoscope with a non-linting cloth to dry the external surfaces prior to going into the cabinet. So we do have to add in that extra step of compressed air drying to make sure that the scope is completely dry before storage. And it's so important because if the scope isn't dry, then any bacteria that do remain after the reprocessing cycle, and there are there's some data out there to support that uh, sometimes bacteria do survive the disinfection process, wow. or um, that it's recontaminated by water. If high-quality water isn't used for rinsing after disinfection, that can recontaminate the scope. 
or if we don't have good hand hygiene and handling practices, then we can accidentally recontaminate that scope. So if we have water or moisture left in the in the internal spaces and the channels of the scope, we know that bacteria grow logarithmically or exponentially, that in a very short period of time, we can have this overgrowth and, and get bacteria in that scope at really high levels, and that's not acceptable to our patients. Also, if we store scopes wet, then we have that potential for biofilm to form in the endoscopes. So they do have to be completely dry, and it's something we never really focused on before, but it is the subject of a lot of talk and a lot of study right now. In fact, SGNA, which is one of the professional societies out there that deals with GI scopes, they state if the scope isn't dry before storage, then it shouldn't be used on a patient. So there's a lot of emphasis right now in studies, as I said. Three studies come to mind. Um, we have one of, in 2018 from Corey Ofsted's group that did find a high number of scopes had residual fluid in them after reprocessing and also high levels of bacterial contamination. Other studies, um, like by Barricat in 2017, showed that it takes 10 minutes of drying and to get the scopes dry, and, and in all, not in all cases do they get completely dry even after 10 minutes of flushing. Uh, so there is data out there now to support that we're not doing the best job that we can, and we know we have to do better. Damien, what do you think? Yes, I, I echo everything you said. Um, and more to the uh, point, what uh, Marianne pointed out is, we in the sterile processing or in the GI endo suites who reprocess the scopes, there's been so much focus and attention on the cleaning and the inspection and the sterilization or high-level disinfection of these devices for many, many years that that's always been the narrative. That's steered the conversation. And we're as we grow in these standards and as we grow in science, there's more studies being done on all the impacts that – other things have like moisture on or in these flexible scopes. So it is so encouraging as a sterile processing manager who uh, staff reprocess these scope is to be able to give them the why. Why are we drying these things? Why is it so important? Because we've always focused on, again, the cleaning, high-level disinfection, or sterilization. So these studies that are coming out, the discussions that are happening nationally and internationally um, are backing up that why. So when you have the frontline staff doing the work, it's so important to give them uh, – um, not only the tools to do the job, but also the training and the understanding. And that, that picture is coming together clearer than we've ever had before, especially when we talk about drawing the flexible endoscopes. Yeah, great point, Damien. And I find you get much higher rates of compliance if you do give technicians or anybody for that fact the why of of the process. You know, why are you doing it, as you said, and therefore they understand and then they do make sure that they're more compliant or compliant with those steps. Absolutely, because everything we do is based off of some type of human factor. I mean, we're, we're humans doing a process, um, and when we write these standards, Mary and I, and I've sat in countless hours of standards meetings and really great discussion back and forth, but sometimes we lack that why um, or that evidence base. So it's just so key important that we're getting to that right now. Well, great. I really appreciate your perspectives on that. And you've mentioned standards. So what sort of guidance or standards should healthcare facilities use to guide them in the processing of flexible endoscopes? 
great question. And facilities should really be using Amy ST91 as their guidance document for the proper reprocessing of flexible and semi-rigid endoscopes. ST91 is the national standard in the U.S. And what's great about it is it's applicable to all types of flexible and semi-rigid endoscopes and applicable to all healthcare settings. So we don't have to pick and choose a guideline that's just applicable to a certain subset of scopes or just in the hospital facility. Really, ST91 covers all of that. And by following this standard, the facility should be implementing then the same standard of care across all of their affiliated locations. So whether they be in the main hospital or a surgery center or a physician's office, they should all be standardizing practices according to the standard. ST91 also is great because it covers the full reprocessing cycle. So from immediately after that scope is removed from one patient, back through all those steps of reprocessing until it's used on the next patient. So you really get that full cycle of coverage. Uh, you do have facilities that will use other guidance documents. For example, some facilities do follow SGNA as their reprocessing guidance document. And we see that commonly where a facility only reprocesses or has the GI scopes because that's what SGNA covers, uh, the GI endoscopes. Others may follow AORN guidance if their scopes are used in the OR, for example, um, then they would use the OR reprocessing guidelines. Yeah, that's uh, very true, Marianne. And the nice thing about Amy and the guidance star, or the standards that we put out and working with um, ST91, as well as many others, it's a collaborative group of experts, both from the industry, from regulatory, from the end users, and from these other associations. So SGNA, AORN, ISHM, we all sit together around these tables to develop these standards so that they have that wide, no pun intended, scope um, that will address whether you're reprocessing a flexible scope in a sterile processing department, in a respiratory department, in a GI or endo department, it will all be applicable in these standards as we try to write it so it covers everybody. Um, that is, that's a challenge sometimes, but it, it is something that we are tasked for and we keep that very mindful. On top of that, I'd like to tag on one other standard that Amy has that really ties in very well with this one as well as many others, and that's ST90, which is the quality management systems. ST90 uh, came out a couple years ago, uh, 2017, and what that does is gives that reprocessing department, no matter what you are, a blueprint or an outline of how to develop a quality management system in your department. And such things as drying your scope, as picking the right brush, as visual inspection, those are all process steps. And by looking at it through quality management, you can help identify process steps, how you uh, implement those process steps, and how you look for deviations or nonconformities in your department that'll help tighten down those process steps and make sure your staff can reproduce them every time. So that's just one of those good uh, subsequent standards that can tie into so many other important ones. Yeah, Damian, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought up ST90, as I don't think a lot of facilities are very familiar with that standard yet. And it really does help to tie everything together. And we have to build this quality into our processing, not just of scopes, but of all of our devices to ensure that we have the best quality outcomes for our patients. So a uh, good addition there. Thank you. My pleasure. So you're both heavily involved in the development of sterilization standards. Could you please highlight a piece of guidance from a standard that you see as a game changer for the sterile processing community? Yeah, I'll start with that one. 
Uh, well, of course, I'm partial to Amy ST91 because I do co-chair that group, uh, and I thoroughly enjoy doing that. And although the ST91 standard is currently in the process of being revised, there is still great information that can be found in the 2015 edition, which is the current one. Specifically related to the drying of flexible endoscopes, and we do in there recommend compressed air drying prior to storage. So it's been in that standard all along. It's just now we have that attention being driven to it. So I just really wanted to focus on what the current standard does say as in ST91. So following the recommended storage practices, facilities do need to make sure those scopes are completely dry prior to storage, as I mentioned earlier, because it does decrease that potential for contamination and proliferation of bacteria. So we want to make sure that they're put into cabinets that are adequately cleaned and that we have at minimum that HEPA filtered air in the cabinet, and they may want to put it into an active drying cabinet where air is hooked up directly to the channels and it goes through that cycle to dry the scope in the storage cabinet. Within ST91, we say that all channels should be purged with compressed air at the correct pressure. And that pressure is designated by the endoscope manufacturer. So your scope manufacturer should be contacted to make sure you know what the pressure is rated at or what you can't exceed for that particular type of scope. Because it can be different if you have a large scope that can ha handle more pressure or a smaller body scope, like a surgical scope, those you need lower pressure. And too high of a pressure then can cause damage internally. So we need to make sure we don't exceed those pressure ratings that the scope manufacturer does uh, print in their IFU. Sure. Even with this new emphasis on drying, we have seen the studies, and I talked about them a little bit earlier, and newer recommendations coming out in other professional society guidelines. But it's consistent that we all say you do need to do more with these scopes, even when they're coming out of an AER. As I said, uh, we used to think that that was the complete cycle. We now know they're still wet, and we need to follow that with a compressed air flush of instrument quality air is what's recommended. And we did say medical grade in ST91, and that's something we will take care of in a future edition. Uh, but the definition for it for instrument quality air is defined by the National Fire Prevention Association, and that's what's recommended for facilities to use to dry their scopes even after the AER cycle. To tie on to that, yeah, absolutely. There's you know so many standards out there, both again in uh, from low temperature sterilization to the flexible and semi-rigid scopes to sterilization to IFUs to water quality. They all have different pieces in the different departments that will really help us um, you know get the work done. One thing I see as a game changer as far as in the sterile processing community or any of the reprocessing community is not only are we getting guidance and we're trying to get that evidence-based guidance to the people doing the work, but also recognizing that it is the people doing the work. We have to invest in the human capital. And that's really tough to uh, write into a standard. <laughs> you, you can't right. talk about the person doing the job. So we provide this guidance. We say you need to do X, Y, Z. You need to have this type of air, this type of cabinets recommended. But we've got to take into account the person doing the work, the time it takes, the physical time, the following the IFUs. So the game changers are is we're, you know, we just uh, are getting close to approving a TIR, technical information report, for the end users on how to, I don't want to say simplify, but how to standardize instructions for use, how to have the end user be able to not only adequately, but reproduce cleaning and or reprocessing 
the same way every time. But when you have IFUs that are all over the place, and we're talking about flexible scopes, semi-rigid scopes, standard stainless, it makes it very tough. So we can have all these great things in our standards, but if the people can't do them because they, we're not giving them the time or we're not giving them the training or it's so confusing, that's you know it blows a lot of that stuff out of the water. So I'm really excited to see that we as um, representatives of the industry and the end users are thinking about that when we're writing in these standards. We've got to give our people more time and more understanding on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it, it is, like I said before, it is really happening. So I think that's the, the big game changer in standards that I've seen in the last oh, 15, 16 years participating in Amy. Well, great, great. Damien, in an interview article in BINT, you mentioned that keeping, motivating, and supporting frontline technicians is a challenge facing sterile processing. Are facilities doing enough to invest in the human capital? I'll be honest, uh, no. I do not believe so at this current time. We keep, unfortunately, seeing in headlines and in newspapers and all over social media about sterile processing departments or reprocessing departments in hospitals failing critical steps or uh, the machines not meeting the needs of the department to keep up with the workflow. So we've got to do something that's a game changer on that as well, too. I do believe the tide is changing more so now than ever. There's more tension and there's more focus on sterile processing departments and reprocessing facilities that we're getting some of the training. I can tell you as a sterile processing manager um, for two large uh, hospitals in Colorado, my job is very simple, but it's very complex. My job is to provide, again, the tools for the staff to do the job, the training for them to do the job, and most importantly, remove any barriers for them doing the job. And barriers could be anything from distractions to, you know, conflicts to uh, questions as far as, you know, someone said, do it like this, someone said, do it like that communication barriers is a huge one. So I think healthcare facilities need to invest in those three things. If we can invest in those three things, then implementing standards, implementing best practices, implementing quality will stick. But until we invest in the people to do that, do the job, we can't get there. But I'm traveling around the country. I'm traveling around the world. And that is a drum I'm pounding on. And that is what I'm trying to uh, get across to my counterparts and my colleagues in and outside of sterile processing and the C-suite as well. And they are very interested because no hospital, no GI department, no healthcare facility wants to make the newspaper in that way. So they're always asking, how can we do that? What what can we do to make a better sterile processing department? And it is about investing in the human capital. It is about propping up your department and team, giving them not only the resources, but the pride to do the job. So it is, it is not there right now nationally, but it is getting there and we, we got to keep getting it. Marianne? Yeah, and continued education and support of frontline staff, I think, is is one way to do that, to keep them motivated and make sure they're getting that support they need. So many healthcare facilities will help their staff by uh, making sure that they get this ongoing education and also allowing them to attend things like local conferences or um, more educational presentations. So I think that by attending things like local conferences, national conferences, it tends to be very motivating to staff and very empowering. So I think we do need to have that support system there to allow facilities, technicians in facilities, to be able to attend things like uh, the ISHAM National Conference, the, the AME Exchange, whatever it may be, because we do see that ongoing education being such an important 
part of maintaining competency. Unfortunately, as Damian said, we don't see a lot of that support from all facilities, and we see that they're cutting budgets, we're cutting the educational program budgets to not allow the technicians to get reimbursed for attending things like that. So I do have some recommendations then to technicians, frontline staff, make sure you're taking advantage of those programs that are available, either free of charge or low cost, or online programs, online CE programs, games, whatever it may be, that you can still continue to get that education and stay uh, up to date and empowered and competent in your job and see what the changes are going forward, because we do need to keep that motivation going. Um, people have to feel like they're involved in something important. And I think that ongoing education is one significant way to do that. Absolutely, Marion. I couldn't agree more with you. And, uh, you're absolutely right. Not only reaching out through your state, your local, the national associations and, and meetings and getting that education, but also reaching out to your vendor friends. There is a wealth of education from the people that are in your facility all the time, the products you buy, uh, the service that's provided to your uh, machines and, and your equipment. There's a manufacturer, there's a vendor behind it. And almost every vendor I know is happy to provide some type of education and uh, training for your department. So utilize your vendor friends to bolster up your education. And that will just be one more piece that you can play with. Marianne, what's one major challenge that you feel deserves more attention? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to bring it back around to scope drying because I think we do have some major challenges associated with ensuring that these scopes are adequately dry before they're stored because we don't really have a good process in place to know if they're completely dry or not. So we do say in the standards and the other professional society guidelines, make sure they're dry. But we don't have much guidance around uh, how dry is dry or what is, does it take 10 minutes to dry a scope? So we don't have really good guidance there yet. We just say to do it. So one of the challenges associated with that is knowing if your scope is dry or to how can you verify the process that you are doing is resulting in a completely dry scope. So most facilities don't have any way to do that. So I think that's a major challenge that we need to address, not only putting more detail into the standards and guidelines about the process um, and continuing to support ongoing research on the topic, but also developing a way to test that they are dry. So right now, there's really only two ways that a facility can check that their drying process is actually working or do that verification step that's recommended in the standards and specifically ST90 as part of a quality system to verify that your processes are actually working properly. So the two ways that a facility can do that now is internal inspection with a boroscope. So that would mean that on some periodic basis that somebody in the processing area would take some scopes out of the storage cabinet, inspect them internally, looking for signs of moisture. So looking for those droplets internally. And that really is the way to visualize if your process is working because you've gone through all of disinfection and the AER cycle, of course, doing all that cleaning before that, and then gone through whatever your drying process is. So by looking periodically, you're verifying that your cycle is in control. The only other way that a facility can really show or demonstrate that their scopes are dry is using some sort of indicator test. And there are some of these on the market now, um, either in a card stock, like a business card style, or indicator strips. 
And basically, it's pretty simple to do where the facility would uh, blow compressed air through their scope and put this indicator at the distal tip or at the suction connector or at the auxiliary water outlet. And if it detects any moisture, it changes color. And I think that's an easy way that facilities can verify either on some periodic basis or even routinely that their scope is completely dry before it goes into, uh, into the storage cabinet. So that's two recommendations that I have for testing the drying. And the other one, knowing that we are working on building more detail into uh, the drying recommendations, and I believe that we'll see IFUs for the scopes even have more information on them going forward now that we have that increased focus and that need for detail on the topic that we didn't have before. So that's one major challenge that I think of and some recommendations of how facilities can overcome that challenge. Yeah, and kind of tag onto that, but a little bit different um, angle is I think one of the challenges we have uh, across country, across the world, honestly, is prior to even drying and part of the cleaning process is, Marianne talked about it um, earlier, is our water quality. Um, our water quality is such an important thing. In fact, um, Amy's TIR 34, which is the water quality document, is uh, hopefully becoming a standard uh, later on this year because it is such an important thing. Knowing the challenges for facilities, knowing what your internal water is, when you're cleaning your rinse quality water, whether it be at the sink or in the machines, all those baselines, I think, are the challenges for hospitals. So when you have something happen, um, whether it be uh, staining on instruments or a contaminated scope or any of that kind of stuff, water quality plays a piece in that. So understanding what your water is so you have a baseline of what your quality is. And then if something happens in your facility, you can reassess and look, did my water quality change or did I need to have something put in place prior to having an incident? So part of that inspection, uh, visual inspection, borescopes or drying is that water quality can impact all those different areas and all those facets of what we do. So I think that's a big challenge and it, it is a very hot topic as well in the industry and in you know the sterile processing world because we have not really focused on that as much as we had in the past. So things like drying, things like water quality, things like you know all this that it takes to get a product clean and or high-level disinfectant and sterilized is, is key. Understanding which water is, making sure your items are dry, all that is key. In the past, it's not just about cleaning. It's not just about high-level disinfection or sterilization. It is all the supporting processes. And I think water quality is one of our major challenges that we're going to start seeing in the next um, year, getting attention along with drying. You're right, Damien. And I think that we often overlook the quality of water that we're using in these different processing steps. And we really take for granted that our water is okay and taken care of, but it ties in perfectly to endoscope processing because we need to meet those specifications of what quality of water are we going to use for rinsing after cleaning versus rinsing after disinfection. And that ties right back into the recommendations in Amy TIR 34, as you said. And just to reiterate, then, with the water quality, we have to think about things like our water quality in our AERs even. And that ties then into the drying, because if we don't have good quality of final rinse water in our AER that can contaminate those scopes, as I said, and then we're not doing a good job of drying, and then we're back to where we were with putting a contaminated scope back in the cabinet. So I think the two marry up really, really well together, Damien. Well, thank you for joining us today, Marianne and Damien. I really appreciate your sharing your valuable insights and expertise on this important topic. Thank you so much, Terry. I'm really glad that I could be a part of this today.
Absolutely. It's been a uh, privilege to participate, and I enjoy always sharing a conversation with my good friend and colleague, Marianne, and uh, helping uh, the Amy audience um, take something away from this uh, podcast. And would like to thank you, our listener, for joining us today. For more great content, please stop by aami.org. This episode of the Amy Podcast is brought to you by Healthmark. Go to healthmarkgi.com to find solutions that help endoscopy clinics manage the proper reprocessing of scopes. This includes products for cleaning verification, tools for cleaning, labeling, time indicators, tip protectors, PPE, and other useful solutions. For this episode of the Amy Podcast, I'm Terry Baker.